The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. Again, this is the second half of John's gospel that focuses on this last week of Jesus. For this morning, our main focus is going to be on Jesus' teaching that begins in verse 24. And it comes as a response to a simple request. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And that's really why we're here. We want to see Jesus, and so let's uh, pray to that end. Would you pray with me? Father, we are here to sing your praises, to give thanks for your many blessings to us, to worship you with our voices, our gifts, our hearts, our minds. Dear God, we wish to see Jesus, to see your Son lifted up, our glorious Savior. So would you, by your Holy Spirit, enable us to not only see but to marvel at him to worship Him, to grow in our trust of Him and what He teaches us here. May our lives be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to You. Father, please bless the preaching and the receiving of Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, let's begin with verse 12 to give us some context. And would you stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word? The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to the feast to, uh, to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. 
If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Jesus will let you down. He will disappoint you if your expectations are wrong. If you don't really see him for who he truly is. We may say that we wish to see Jesus But are we open to seeing and submitting to and following the Jesus of the Bible? This Jesus didn't live up to the expectations of the crowd. They saw or heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and thought, Now this is the guy, now this kind of power, this might be the one who can solve our problems. And we can finally be free. But freed from what? Seems that they set their desires and expectations too low. And many people do this. They set their desires and expectations too low. If your desire is only to see an example of moral goodness, then Jesus is going to frustrate you. Because you are always going to fall short. If you see him as a good teacher of ethics, you will always be found guilty. If you see him as a way to blessing of health, wealth, and prosperity, then if you're actually honest, you will eventually abandon him as you become disillusioned in your suffering. If you force your own ideas and agendas on him, he'll let you down. Because you'll discover that he isn't who you want him to be. And this is the problem. Not Jesus. Us. We're the problem. What we want, what we expect, what we think is best. Jesus will never change for us. But if we truly wish to see him, then he will change us. And in that change, we will submit to his desires and commands, and we will see a much greater beauty and glory than we ever thought possible. We wish to see Jesus. There are certain statements that, that stand out as we're reading through God's word. A simple question, or in this case, a a request And it's interesting to think of it along the lines of the Apostle John writing his gospel. Why did he include this? He, He tells us in his purpose statement at the end that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So why include this? Why include these Greeks coming and asking this question. The other Gospels didn't include this. But that he does tells us something about what he wants to communicate. And, and it fits with his purpose statement. His purpose statement that says that he wrote this Gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
John writes so that people will see and believe in the real Jesus. He doesn't want you to believe in a Jesus who can let you down. No, he, he wants us to see the real Jesus and to submit to the reality of who he is, to believe in him. And if we do, then he will never let us down. What's your problem? Is it the government? Is it the virus? Is it moral issues of our culture? Financial problems? Relational problems? Health? Disability? Social justice? We need to see Jesus. Not the Jesus of our imagination and wrong expectations. Not the Jesus who settles for being a good teacher or a moral example or a political insurrectionist. No, we need to see the Jesus who addresses our real problem. And our real problem is not the government. It's not our need for physical healing. No, our real problem is us. It's me. It's you. We need to die to us. We need to die to our sin. And this is what Jesus tells us. So if Jesus disappoints you, then you need to die. Die to your ideas, die to your expectations and assumptions, and trust in him. And if you do, he will never let you down. So Andrew and Philip, they go to Jesus and they they let him know that these Greeks want to see him. And what is Jesus' response? He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's his response. Their coming, these Greeks coming, signaled something to Jesus, something significant. Now... Of all the things that have happened leading up to this, now, finally, after all this buildup and Jesus' mission, what he ultimately came to do, now it's here. The hour has finally come. In the past, people expected, the time is now, his mom, Mary, at the wedding feast, wanted Jesus to reveal himself, his glory, And he replied, my hour has not yet come. At the Feast of Tabernacles, his brothers said, go do a bunch of miracles. Show your glory. And he said, my time has not yet come. Even when the authorities failed to arrest him, they couldn't arrest him because his time had not yet come. So why does the arrival of these Greeks caused Jesus to finally say, the hour has come. There has been conflict building between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. The crisis is coming quickly, even orchestrated by Jesus. Even orchestrated by Jesus as he appears to the people in a form that he knows is not going to meet their expectations. It's not going to solve the problems that they think that they have. They are excited about his power, 
expecting this kind of power to give them salvation from their problems. They're crying out, Hosanna, save us. And Jesus forces their hand by not giving them the kind of salvation that they want. They want the sword and a leader riding in on a war horse. They want salvation from Rome. But Jesus doesn't change to meet their expectations. No, he, he rides in on a donkey. Instead of communicating war and might, he communicates peace and humility. Not what they wanted, not what they expected. They are in bondage to sin and death and their preference is to be freed from something infinitely less oppressive. And they would gladly settle for this. Jesus lets them down. And it shouldn't be surprising that they are disillusioned and disappointed and that they reject a different kind of Jesus, one that doesn't meet their expectations and they quickly call for his crucifixion. That's not surprising. But now these Greeks who represent the Gentile world appear asking for Jesus and now Jesus says the hour has come. Jesus sees that the decisive turning point of his mission in the world is at hand. And we know, as Peter would later preach, that God intended for the gospel to go to the Gentiles, taking from them a people for his name. And the Pharisees grieve, saying, look, the world has gone after him. And John, being the writer that he is, includes this great irony Look, the world has gone after him. This detail reporting the arrival of these Greeks showing that, yes, Jesus intends to gain converts from the whole world. Yes, the entire world represented by these Greeks are now beginning to go after Jesus. The hour has come. Jesus uses Also, the title, Son of Man, which people know from Daniel chapter 7 and speaks of his coming in glory, establishing a kingdom made up of all peoples, nations, and languages. Son of Man, a popular image among the Jews, and Jesus used this title concerning himself when speaking of his second coming in glory. But Jesus also pointed out what the Jews apparently forgot. That for the Son of Man to ascend, he must first descend. And so he also uses this title when predicting his eventual death on the cross. So in saying the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, the Jewish hearers would imagine the glory of, what, trumpets blowing... God's people marching in conquest of the world. But Jesus was referring to the glory of the cross. D.A. Carson comments that Jesus' death was itself the supreme manifestation of Jesus' glory. And with all this talk of glory, let me point out something about glorifying. 
and an important aspect of glorifying something has to do with revealing, putting on display. Beautiful art is glorified not by sticking it away in a warehouse somewhere where no one's going to see it, but by putting it prominently on display for people to admire. What displays the true glory of the Son of Man? How is he lifted up and put on display? What does it reveal about his greatness? Jesus says it's his crucifixion. We want to see Jesus. Well, this is who he is. This is his glory. Put on display, revealed. His willing sacrifice that makes atonement for our sin. The world sees this as ugly and foolish and humiliating. And Jesus sees it as his highest glory. On the night of his arrest, he says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if we rightly understand that our biggest problem is sin, then we will see the cross as the power and wisdom of God and not a stumbling block or folly. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Christ's death is his glory and it ought also to be ours. To spiritual eyes, the Christ of God was never more glorious than when he was nailed to the cross of Calvary, a glory never equaled, shown around the conqueror of death and hell when he bowed his head and said, it is finished. The hour has come. And Jesus speaks to those around him, teaching them about glory, the revealing, the display of his perfect character, his greatness and love. Communicated communicated no more clearly than upon the cross. And in speaking of his glory, there is application for us because we are the fruit of his glory, the fruit of his death and resurrection. So Jesus says, truly, truly, And when Jesus says, truly, truly, when he uses this form of emphasis to get people's attention, repeating himself, those around him would have stopped and realized, okay, Jesus is going to say something really important. I better pay attention. He He really wants us to know something here. He's emphasizing this. So speaking of glory, here's what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, The Father will honor him. Speaking of glory, Jesus uses an illustration from nature about death and life. Jesus uh, speaks of a, a seed being buried in the ground and decaying and giving birth to a plant. So he is glorified as he 
bears fruit through his suffering and death. And there is a general principle in this. That the way to really live is not by self-indulgence, but by self-denial. That would be a principle in this teaching. If you have the, you know, for example, if you have the enjoyment um, of playing music, playing an instrument, have that kind of skill, then there was likely some, no, there was some self-denial, unless you're some kind of savant, some genius, there was likely some kind of self-denial. You were denied times of indulging with playing outside with friends, and instead you spent hours and years in practice, probably at times unpleasant, self-denial. If we want to feel good physically, then it's probably a bad idea to indulge at donut country and lay around on the couch every day. At some point, you're not going to feel so good. So there needs to be some self-denial. We need to eat healthy food and actually exercise a little bit. And of course, the greatest example of self-denial is Jesus. And concerning this, J.C. Ryle wrote, This sentence was primarily meant to teach the wandering Greeks the true nature of Messiah's kingdom. Our Lord would have them know that he came to carry a cross and not to wear a crown. He came not to live a life of honor, ease, and magnificence, but to die a shameful and dishonored death. The kingdom he came to set up was to begin with a crucifixion and not a coronation. Its glory was to take its rise not from victories won by the sword and from accumulated treasures of gold and silver, but from the death of its king. It's only by dying that Jesus became our Savior. There is no Christianity without the cross. Our greatest problem is God's righteous condemnation of our sin. And so it is glorious that Jesus would solve the greatest problem as he is lifted up and put on display as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. For those who say that they love Jesus but deny the necessity of the cross, for those who want Jesus to give them political freedom or a life of health, wealth, and prosperity, if they reject their true need and the glory of the cross, then they, like so many of these Jews who didn't like what Jesus offered them, they, if they're honest, will ultimately reject him. For these Greeks, or for anyone who truly wants to see Jesus, what he gives is his death and resurrection. The only thing he gives is the best. And if we say, no thanks, then we cannot have and we will not see Jesus. But as one pastor wrote, because of his death, multitudes of every tongue and nation would come forth to eternal life in him as fruit. How true this has been as we survey the pages of church history. Wherever the message of Christ's atoning death has gone, 
it has borne fruit in abundance. This is the very heart of the Christian gospel. So we see a principle that applies to Jesus. But there's also a principle that applies to us because Jesus went on to say, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Do you see the principle of death and life here? And of course, Jesus isn't telling us simply to to hate life itself and to not be thankful for the, the many wonderful and great gifts that we enjoy in this life. But what he does mean is that we shouldn't live for ourselves. True disciples of Christ don't follow a worldly way of thinking and feeling where it's all about me and my ego. It's all about my Disney-like pursuit of the dream and self-actualization, getting what I can get, being driven, even at the expense of others. No, we are to hate or resist this ultimately unfulfilling trap. We are to hate a life that is empty, a life that leads to things that that will not satisfy. But if we resist this worldly pursuit, even hating it, because it promises a lie of Fulfillment that's never realized. If we resist this and follow after the real Jesus, then we will have, we will gain a life born and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is life. Jesus is life. And so many Christians only think of their faith and salvation as a life to come. But what Jesus describes here is a change of a direction and attitude right now. Your faith is not you saying some magic words, a sinner's prayer, so that you can feel safe ignoring Jesus and loving what he tells you to hate, thinking that it really doesn't matter. And that one day you'll safely arrive in heaven. And sadly, many who call themselves Christians think that way. May not actually say it out loud, but that's how they live. Those who say it's only about your prayer of salvation, your words, and not a change of life right now, they are denying the truly, truly the very important teaching of Jesus. And of course, the change of life and attitude is not a work that earns us salvation. Look at the illustration that Jesus gives. The change of life, the fruit that comes is a result of you dying and sprouting to new life where you cannot help but bear fruit. Jesus doesn't simply speak of a goal concerning of an eventual destination. No, salvation is, it's here. It's now. We are saved. We are transformed. Our attitudes are different. 
And we will not only be with Jesus one day, one future day, but we are with him now. We just dined at his table and enjoyed his presence. The now of his presence and our transformation, this is a product. It is a fruit of his work, not ours. We are saved by trusting in Christ's death for us. And there is also a death that we that we ourselves experience. A death to ourselves, to our own will as we surrender our lives to Jesus. And in this death, our purpose, our pursuit in life is not ultimately a striving after money, success, fame, or pleasure of life. And again, there are many good gifts that God gives us in life, and money itself is not evil, but the love of money is the root of all evil. Success and fame are not sinful, but they can be. They can be if it's about us and our pursuit of our own ego. Pleasure is not wrong if our greatest pleasure is God and all these earthly pleasures that he provides serve to point us to him and give thanks and praise to him as the giver of good gifts instead of replacing him as an idol. So in and of themselves, these things are not sinful, but if they are your life, your pursuit, your aim, then Jesus says that, that has to die. And if it doesn't, he says, you're going to lose. You're going to lose and you don't have life with him. We belong to him. We surrender our lives, what we do, what we live for, where, we, where he would have us go, where he would have us serve. We die to self and live for him. And the reality is this will give us a satisfaction in life that no idol can provide. To live is Christ and to die to these things and to ourself is gain. George Mueller, the famous 19th century believer who established and ran many orphanages in England, a man known for amazing and powerful prayer, was asked, what's your secret? Here's what he said. There was a day when I died. Died to George Mueller. His opinions preferences, tastes, and will died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame even of my brethren or friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. So we die to self. And another death we experience is to sin. Paul explained this in Romans 6. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We die to sin by starving it, 
by not giving it room in our lives, by not taking it lightly or playing around with temptation and by presenting our lives to God. Our lives are, as Romans 12 tells us, living sacrifices. And so we offer our feet to God, avoiding places where we're tempted to sin. By offering our hands to God, doing good works. By offering our lips to God with speech that praises Him and lifts others up and spreads the gospel instead of gossiping and slander and cursing. We offer our eyes to Him by not looking in lust or envy. We offer our minds by filling it with the light of God's Word. And none of this is easy. One pastor recognized the great challenge in this, saying we are deeply in love with the world. This is a hard fight. As old as you get in your faith, it's still a fight. We are deeply in love with the world. We play the game of life according to the rules the world lays down. Sometimes we drink of the trough with which it satisfies its ordinary swine. We relish certain things that heaven despises. And I appreciate that honesty and relate to it. An honesty that recognizes this is a, this is a difficult battle. And because it's not simple to die to sin, we should be that much more serious about prayer, about applying biblical truths. We need to be that much more devoted to a life of communing with God through study of His Word, which according to Romans 12 transforms us, transforms us through the renewing of our minds. So there's an act of of faith When you go to God's Word, do you really believe this is God's Word that has the power to change, to renew my mind? This is what it says. And so faith would say, okay, I believe this. I'm going to do this. This is how I fight sin. This is how I grow in godliness. So go to God's Word in faith, not just as the checklist. Lastly, Jesus concluded his teaching By laying out a path leading to glory. He said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So I want to think of three things in that that verse. And the first is really obvious. We are to follow Jesus. J.C. Ryle wrote, As the soldier follows his general, as the servant follows his master, as the scholar follows his teacher, as the sheep follow its shepherd, just so ought the professing Christian to follow Christ. Faith and obedience are the leading marks of real followers and will always be seen in true believing Christians. So again, it sounds obvious, but Christians follow Christ. And doing so means that we follow him in a, in a life of self-denial, of service to God and man. We follow him by holding fast to the teachings of his word, regardless of what people think and how society changes and how we're going to be viewed. And 
We follow him by pursuing a life of holiness through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need each other. We don't do this on our own. We need each other. Not in competition, but confessing to one another, praying for one another, humbly encouraging one another to follow Jesus. A second teaching in this path of glory comes to us not in a command, but in a promise. The path of glory experiences the presence of Christ. Jesus said, where I am, there will my servant be also. This is our great reward and pleasure in this life, to have Christ's encouragement, to know his approval, to live by his power. Jesus is with every Christian. And even when we stray, the good shepherd comes after us. But we experience his presence when we follow after him. So the path of glory is a path of faith that asks, would I rather have pleasure without the presence of Christ? Or do I believe that nothing this world has to offer me compares to the blessing of Christ's presence? Following Christ, it is our Christian duty, and being in the presence of Christ is our great reward. Lastly, consider how great How great is the promise of Jesus saying, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Wow. God will honor you in your following of Christ. Our problem in life is that we don't aim high enough. We settle for earthly Happiness when Christ calls us to holiness. We settle for earthly success when we're made and saved for this, for glory. And a promise honoring from God himself. Jesus actually says that God the Father will honor you if you follow after Christ and serve him. Yes, the path is difficult. It involves suffering and death and self-denial and persecution. But every good thing that you enjoy involves some of that. Some discipline, self, some denial. Jesus lays it or says that it will lead to honor. The praise of the Father. Wow. So the question is, do you believe Jesus or not? Do I believe what he says here or not? And if I do, if we do, is it following him on this path of glory worth it? The Greeks said we wish to see Jesus. Do you wish to see Jesus? If so we got to count the cost, but we need to believe the reward that he promises. Jesus' answer shows us the cross. And the cross means that we confess our guilt before God and embrace his atoning death for us. Is this the Jesus that you want to see? 
When he calls you to deny yourself and follow him, do you still wish to see Jesus? When we come to Jesus, it will lead to our own death. But remember, that that death leads to everlasting life with him. Glory. And if we truly wish to show Jesus to others, then it must come in a life that believes what he says and is devoted to him. Let's pray. Father, we've come this morning to worship you. We've come to worship your son and give thanks for the Holy Spirit who unites us to him, who shows us who Jesus really is through your word. May your spirit reveal and convict each of us that there are areas in our lives that need to be put to death. And that this needs to happen so that we might truly live. Give us faith in you. Help us to trust you. To maybe jump into what seems scary. Believing you will not only catch us, but guide us and give us a stronger faith and a, and a greater joy. As we know and take pleasure in the presence of Christ here and now. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our trust as we die to sin and self and truly live for you. Lord, use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God bless you.